What is up, crew? Good to see you guys. Uh, you can tell that we are a home church now. Uh, apparently meeting at Grandma's house. Uh, this is some nice grandma furniture here. And 1987 called the rotary phone is here. That's, that is wonderful. Got to love this little thing going on. We can have some fun with it though a little bit. Kind of enjoy our set. Hey, before we get started though, there are some things you need to know about. Super, super important. Super, super cool. Now, here is the first thing. One week from today is... A plus, man. A plus right there. It is Easter, and there's some cool stuff happening on Easter. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, which is very cool. The other thing, though, is that we are going to be having baptisms. And so if you have not been baptized, you want to be baptized. You want to think nacho libre. Why wouldn't haven't you been baptized, right? Like, you need to be baptized. If you haven't been baptized, please Pray, consider, obey, and do it. We would love to see that. And so you can let us know in the office. You can send us an email. You can give us a call. You can do whatever you want and uh, let us know that you're interested. I think we're going to have another class this week. Uh, we've been doing them throughout the last few weeks. So that way you could get signed up for that and be baptized next Sunday. That's going to be awesome. The other thing you want to keep in mind is this coming Friday night is Good Friday. And uh, if you grew up in a Catholic tradition or, or some other traditions, you would celebrate Good Friday every year, right? Because again, it marks what Sunday's all about, right? Good Friday is really Bad Friday in that it's harsh Wrath Friday that leads to the resurrection of the glorious Sunday where Christ is alive forevermore, right? So we are having a service right in this room. At 7 o'clock Friday night, and you will want to be a part of that as well. We're going to have the full RC Kids slate available. So if you have kids, we're going to have something for the kids as well as the service for us here. And again, if you're going like, I don't know if I want to do that, I'll tell you what. It, it makes Easter make more sense if you're here on Friday night. It will just do that. So we'd love to see you all out here Friday night, then Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday. Bring a friend. Friends will come to Easter unlike any other Sunday. I don't know why. It's like, they just like, oh, Easter's the time I go. We would love to go then. So invite a friend. They're most apt to go uh, this coming Sunday. So again, you can keep that uh, in the old noggin as well. So let's go ahead and pray right now. Get ready for today and all God has for us. Jesus, man, I thank you. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your power and your word. And I pray today uniquely that you will speak to our hearts and minds in a way that motivates us to be about your business, to seek what you seek, to hunger for that which you have instilled in us a hunger for. I mean, that it would just be that thing where we want you above all else, and that that would drive all of our prayers, all of our thoughts, all of our ambitions. So we look to you, we love you, and we thank you in your good and awesome name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, first service, please open up your Bible to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 15. Now, if you are new with us this morning, you have not been to Redemption Church, uh, what we do here right now is we are going through this particular letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, right? This book known as Ephesians. And uh, you'll notice even in our kind of theme of the series, we're, we're using this World War II bomber, we're using this idea 
that the book of Ephesians is this high-altitude bombing run of God's truth, God's message, God's uh, doctrine for the church, but a doctrine that isn't just lofty and useless, but a doctrine that is very much designed to change the topography of life. Designed to shape how we see our world, how we interact with our world, how we then are used to be shapers in our world, right? All for God, all for His glory. That is the heart behind it. So that is what we are doing. We're just going through the book of Ephesians, kind of verse for verse, understanding what it says to us. And so far, we've only made it 14 verses. We are flying, all right? Three weeks, roughly. 14 verses, we are moving at a snail's pace. We are so good at this, all right? But those first 14 verses were huge, huge to the whole idea of everything. In fact, if you weren't with us, what you would have seen if you had been here is that we looked at basically 202 words that comprised one single run-on sentence that was designed to remind us who God is, and what God has done. And that's all it does. It doesn't tell us what to do. It doesn't tell us how to do it. It doesn't tell us how to behave or how to act. It simply says, this is who God is and what God has done for you. That's it. Not a single commandment. Not a single imperative. Just all of these truths. In fact, here's the toughest thing about the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters don't tell us what to do, right? You, you'll read it. Go ahead and read it, because I know there's people going, Matt, you got to tell us what to do. You keep talking about grace, about grace, about grace. When are we supposed to know what to do? And I'd be like, well, that's chapter four. We're nowhere near there yet. We have to keep learning what it is God wants us to know before we can fully understand and comprehend what it means to do. In fact, this has been Paul's whole heart up to this point. His message is he keeps saying, I want you to know. I want you to experience. I want you to be dug down deep in certain truths that make all of life tick. It is so easy for Christianity to become all about the morals and the ethics and the values at the cost of knowing why. And from that, what can be born is a lot of legalism, a lot of rule-keeping, a lot of kind of dead orthodoxy, the chosen frozen, right? And that's not what Paul seeks. Paul is this guy that knows the gospel changes everything. He's this guy that knows that Jesus came into the world to give us life and life abundant, life full, life amazing. And so he keeps wanting to hammer these truths that we should know so that we will then from that, act in the way that God has called us to act, which, by the way, again, is not just a bunch of rule keepers. It's something more profound. It's more life-changing. It's more heart-filling than that. And so he says all these things, right? He keeps telling us, here's the truth, here's the truth, here's the truth. He says, here's the truth. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's just the truth. And here's the truth, God chose you. Here's the truth, God predestined you. Here's the truth, God adopted you. Here's the truth, God redeemed you. Here's another truth, God forgave you. Here's another truth, God has sealed you. Right, he just keeps hammering, dropping the bombs, right? These are all the things that are true. And he says that in 202 words, one sentence, up to verse 14. I mean, that's pretty powerful. 
So then how do you follow up on such an immense single sentence just filled with all these great truths? Well, you follow it up with another very long run-on sentence of 169 words. At least that's how Paul chooses to do that. But he does it in the form of a prayer. It's a prayer. He moves from what we need to know, how we need to think, how we need to understand, to this prayer that says, you know what, I pray that you would know then in mind and heart and conviction and experience all these truths. He says, I pray that you would know faith and hope and love. I pray that you know the Father and the Son and the Spirit. I pray that you know revelation and glory and power. He says, I want you to know all of that stuff, not just here, not just on paper, but you know it in your heart, you know it in your gut. It drives all of your action and reaction in life. He says, oh man, that's what I'm praying, that the church would know. He prays with passion and determination and hope. And so we want to look at this prayer. Now as we do so, we realize prayer is tricky business. It is. Now here's the thing about prayer. Prayer is powerful. It's crazy powerful. And I believe everybody in this room knows that to be true. They're all going to say that on the test. Prayer matters. Prayer changes things. We should all pray. We should pray with anticipation. We, would, we should pray with expectation. All of those things. We're going to, we're going to affirm that. But oftentimes we find in our own lives that we struggle to really implement that, right? I mean, we know it's critical. We know that it will shape our lives, it will mold our perspective, that God will invade our space when we really pray. But when we look at our daily lives, we start to go, but but boy, how often do we pray? And and what do we pray about? Uh, We were talking about this uh, just this last week when we did the five days of prayer, which, hey, it was awesome. We had tons of people be a part of that. But the leadership began to hear in the context of that, people saying, for a whole hour? What are we going to pray about for a whole hour? Now, if you're a guy, I get that, right? I mean, that's like, the wife's like, can we just talk for like an hour? And the guy's like, why? An hour? After five minutes, I don't have anything left. But we were hearing this even from a lot of the ladies. What are we going to pray about for an hour? What is there you could possibly do and say for that time? And again, that's not a criticism. I think that's a reality that, that you know, we, we, we struggle with prayer. We don't do it as often as we would like. We don't even fully know what to pray for at times. But if we seek it, protect it, engage it, expand it, God shows up big. He shows up big. And so Paul, after having just said, here is all the truth of what God has done in Christ for you. You don't do any of it. He's done it for you. After saying all that God has done, Paul prays that we would get it. He prays that we would get it. He prays for the Ephesians. He prays for us here in this room. He's praying for us that we would know certain things. And we can learn from the pattern of his prayer as to how we can pray for ourselves and for one another. And I love Paul's prayer here. Because it actually starts off in a place that is so critical. It's thankfulness for the important things. Right? 
He starts off in a fundamental location. He is thankful. Verse 15. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I want you to notice two things right there in that verse. First of all, it's the act of thankfulness. Second, it is the content of thankfulness. He has both things going on simultaneously in the passage. Here's the first thing I want to point out, the act of thankfulness. And I want to point out why it's huge. I want you to keep in mind where Paul is. Paul is in prison. He's in jail. He's in jail because he's been faithful to God. He's in jail because he's preached the good news. He's in jail. He's actually shackled because he wants to share a message that unshackles people, that frees them from their oppression, that frees them from their imprisonment, right? So oddly, he has faithfully proclaimed a message of liberty, and it's cost him his liberty. And I don't know about you, but I know if I'm that guy faithfully doing what God has called me to do, and then I land my butt in prison for being faithful to God, I might get a little bitter. Right? I might get a little frustrated at that because I'd be like, wait a minute, I'm doing everything you told me to do. I'm being a faithful, godly person. Why is life not going better for me? Come on, God. Why don't you just open up the doors and let me walk out? You did that for other dudes in the book of Acts. There's other guys that landed in jail and the angel comes and lets them go. There was times in Paul's own life where that happened with him. But now he's in this Roman prison for just being faithful to God, doing what God wants him to do. That would be an excellent opportunity to not be thankful. Right? In fact, I look at my own life sometimes where I'll be bitter or angry or I'll just start to drift spiritually away from God because I go, wait a minute, I thought this whole gig was real simple. I would do what you tell me to do. And if I did it, you would make my life easier. If I did it, you would rescue me from the perils that I face. If I did it, it would always be a blessing under my life because you promised me blessing anyway, right? So, so it's real easy then when it's not going the way we want to go, well, I'm a little bit bitter and I'm not terribly thankful. In fact, I'm frustrated. Or I'm discouraged. I'm just spiritually kind of drying up right now. Nothing's going right, so I'm not terribly excited. That's an easy place to go. I would think it would be a really easy place for Paul to go. After all these years and all this investment, what is his payment? Prison. See, we grow frustrated in our conditions, but Paul, he is thankful. He is thankful. And I want you to understand Paul is not thankful because he says, wow, this prison's like the Hilton. This is awesome. He's not thankful because of the conditions. He's not thankful because friends stab him in the back. He's not thankful because people actually have taken this message of the gospel and they're beginning to use it for their own gain as peddlers of the word of God. He's not thankful for all the problems. He's simply thankful despite the problems. Because God is good. Paul chooses thankfulness regardless of the conditions. He says, I don't need my conditions to be perfect or ideal or comfortable to be thankful. In fact, Paul could even say, you know what? My life has fallen apart. I'm losing my eyesight. I've been physically beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been left for dead. I've been hated. Everything has been bad, but I choose 
thankfulness. One of the challenges in our life is too often we wait for the conditions to drive thankfulness as opposed to choosing thankfulness regardless of the conditions. Right? And some of the times we'll wait a long time before we get thankful conditions. Like forever. Right? Well, when the market goes back up, I'll be thankful. When my house isn't underwater anymore, I'll be thankful. When I don't have these unexpected bills, then I'll be thankful. When my kids start to do the right thing, then I'll be thankful. When my marriage is better, I'll be thankful. When my job is happy, I'll be thankful. You might always be waiting. But you don't need to wait to be thankful. You don't. Right? Thankfulness is a choice. And the more we choose thankful outside of the conditions, it will protect our heart. It will refresh the soul. Paul knew this. He knew this. This is why he could say, you know what, I've had life with plenty, I've had life with nothing. I've lived my life in freedom, I've lived my life in bondage, and in all of it he was profoundly content and he could rejoice, and again he would say, rejoice, because he's thankful. He chooses that hard route. And I want you to notice the key here. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Here's the key if you go once a week. Morning, God, it's Monday. Thank you. See you next Monday when I tell you thankful, thank you again. Then you're, you're not going to feel that freedom. You're not. You have to every day, multiple times a day, say thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you for all the little things I have. I might not have a lot of things, but these little things, these positive things, these encouraging things, maybe it's thankful for something that's going on in somebody else's life and it's not your life. This is Paul here. He's thankful for them. He has thanks because of what God is developing in others for why he's thankful. I guarantee you this has to be a run-to for us. Let me tell you, this week, um, I would say that this last seven days was, was probably, it's going to go in my top five worst weeks. Um, just personally, just for just things and reasons of life. And I've probably shed more tears in the last seven days than I probably have in the last seven years. And that says a lot because the last seven years hasn't always been awesome. Um, so, uh, and I, I remember I was driving home, I think Thursday afternoon, and, and, and just all the, all the everything, you know, and, and uh, I'm, I'm driving, and I remember literally for 20 minutes, all I did was just, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And, and, and part of that is because it's commanded. Part of that is because it's healing. It's insulation from saying, um, I'm not thankful. I'm a little bitter. I'm a little angry. I'm a little frustrated. I'm a little worried. I'm a little scared. I don't have control. Right? Whatever else. Right? There's this healing that goes on. We spend a lot of our time fixating or fixing or fretting or growing angry and having arguments in our head about all the problems that we have. Right? It's easy to do that. It's hard to say, I'm going to just stop and say thank you. And I'll tell you what, I had, I had to do that out loud. I mean, out, I couldn't just be like in my head, thank you, because then my mind would go to other places. I literally had to resist my own drift internally by out loud over and over again saying it. And picking all the reasons. 
for this, for this, for this, for this, for this, so I didn't get swallowed. And all the stuff of life. Paul could have been swallowed, but instead he chooses the act of thankfulness. And he's thankful for the important things. That's the content. The content is their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Right? Thankful for the important things. This is part of the thing. Sometimes we're going to say, God, thank you for my house and my car and my job, kind of. Um, thank you for my spouse, kind of. Um, thank you for my kids, uh, kind of. Um, you know, we, we go through the list of things, and we should be thankful for all of those things. But really here, faith and love. The important things, right? He's thankful for. First of all, for our faith. He's thankful for our faith because it makes us altogether different than our culture. Did you realize that's what makes you different than your culture is your faith? Not, not just the orthodoxy of our faith, the very notion that we believe in a God that can't be seen, but his presence is unmistakable, right? Undeniable. That's what makes us different. Everybody has faith. The atheist has faith. The agnostic has faith. Every religion has faith. Everybody has faith in this environment. Everybody does. We put faith in all kinds of things. Politicians, that always goes well for us. We put faith in markets and specialists and weapons and banks and education. We put faith in people. Every single day, everybody is placing faith in something and then they're shocked when they just realize it's not the best place to put my faith. And then... There is the Christian who is altogether different than their culture because, again, they put their faith in the one who is personal and powerful, invisible, but so felt. And because he is true and because we believe, we can choose to do the right thing in the right way, knowing that God will deliver and God will handle it. This is one of the hardest things. Sometimes when we don't trust, we don't have faith, we don't believe, we choose a lot of other things because we're trying to hedge our bets, control our environment, fix our problems. We don't go all the way with saying, God, I'm going I'm to go trust you to the end. We go, no, no I'm going to trust you halfway. And when you don't deliver in the way I want, then I'm going to break the rules to save myself. Right? And, and God says, nah, don't do that, man. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. No, choose faith. That is a thankful thing. That is a praiseworthy thing. Faith. That makes us different. Right? It makes us altogether different than culture. But he also prays for our love and thanks God for our love because it's designed to make us attractive to our culture. Faith makes us different than the culture, but our love should make us attractive to the culture. Should. Right? Doesn't always. Sometimes we fail at this. But Jesus even said, the world's going to know you're my disciples because you love one another. Right? Love is worthy of thankfulness. To see love in action. Boy, we should be thankful for that. We should. Because too often I find even in the church, we have just enough religion and just enough ethics to judge but sometimes not enough grace to love. It's a struggle and a challenge. Even for Paul, down the road when we get further into our series, when we get into First and Second Timothy and the book of Revelation even, we're going to see that this church lost its love. 
This church was already beginning to lose some of the fabric of that love, but despite that, Paul is still thankful. He finds the good and doesn't just camp on the bad. Good lesson for us. To be thankful for faith and thankful for love. It's in this thankfulness that it stirs him to prayerfulness. And as he prays, he prays for transforming things, right? Transforming things. See, I love this because, again, for Paul, prayer isn't just driven by broken things. But he also prays for things that are healthy but can see more expansion. Right? And Paul prays not because, oh, I, gotta, I, I, I need to pray, but because there's a joy for him in praying for healthy things to be more healthy. And so he prays and is thankful. He says, I'm remembering you in my prayers. Right? This is the, the, thrust, the thrust of everything he is about. And he's going to give this prayer that, frankly, isn't exhaustive. It's not. It's not like everything Paul ever prayed for them. But it is insightful to the kinds of things that inhabited his prayers. And if you want to know, hey, Matt, how should I pray? What are the things I should pray for? Well, this is a great list of those things. Because sometimes as Christians start to analyze the majority of our prayers. Right? If we really want to know, we should ask, well, what is it we, we typically pray for? It's weird, like we pray for things like traveling mercies a lot, which is fine. Right? We're going to go on a trip, we're going to pray for traveling mercies. Somebody's coming to us, we're going to tra- pray for traveling mercies. That's great, but sometimes it's the bulk of our prayers. We pray for God to bless food. God bless our food. It's great. But sometimes that's the bulk of our prayers. Or we pray, God, give us a great day, or get me out of this mess, or help, please. Right? Those are the types of prayers that we can have. Not bad, not wrong. They're good, they're healthy. But sometimes even a lot of us look and go, you know what, if I pray for five minutes a day, that's pretty big. Fifteen minutes a day would be huge. And sometimes what we pray for, while not bad, are not the transformational things. So Paul prays for transformational things. right? To truly transform the things that can change everything. Verse 17, here is that first thing he rolls in with. He says, I remember you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation. Right? So of all the ways he could open up, of the very first thing he could pray, he says, this is what I pray for right here for you. Now here's the thing about this that I love. It is not a prayer that says, I pray that you grow in, learn of, or invest into. That would be great because it would be saying, here's what I pray, I pray that you go and do something. Right? That's what we we would love because we love to go and do. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Maybe if it's convenient. Here is not a prayer of what we can go and do or go and achieve. Not at all. Notice the request. It's that God may give. That God may give. See, right here, the request is for God to give that which only heaven can lay in the soul. Only heaven can do this. Right? We can grab our Bibles. We can study them like crazy. We can grab theology books and learn all the doctrine. We can grab all the practical Christian living books there are. And we can ingest all the information. But it's still going to fall short of what Paul's praying here. Not that that doesn't have tremendous value, but there's something deeper that he's getting at. He's getting at this idea that says, you know what, here's this thing we ask that we can't earn, we can't create, we can't build into us. 
Only God can deposit this. Only God can sink this into our mind and heart and gut in such a way that it really brings transformation. The question is why? Why, is he, why does he pray for this? Why is it only God can do this? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul has this great breakdown. He says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it's the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters at Ivy League schools is where, all right? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So we preach that Christ was crucified. That's what he says, it's crazy, so we preach it. The Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's nonsense. But to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Here's why I'm saying heaven must deposit this into us. Because if heaven does not, if God does not give you that wisdom and revelation, it's just craziness what this book says. It is crazy, nutty, why do that book? Here's what I mean. There's some things in the Bible everybody agrees on, or most everybody. But there's a lot of stuff this book says that people do not want to do and do not agree on. Boy, to love your enemies, do good, pray for them, uh, give them cold water and food to eat, and have no vengeance of your own. Leave that to God. That's a, that's a crazy notion. You want to be the greatest in life? Be the least. You want to be the first? Be the last. That's a crazy notion. When life is at its worst and you are at your weakest, that's when you're your strongest in Him. Right? That, that, that's, that's foolish talk, especially for Americans, where we're very independent and self-determined and get along on our strength. But that's the foolishness of this message. And only if God flips the switch will it make sense. Really, only if God flips the switch. Only if God flips the switch will you say, you know what, giving away my money is gain. Right? Only if God flips the switch will you realize that to serve and self-sacrifice is really to become the greatest. Right? Only then. Only if you really trust God are you going to want to obey these things like how husbands lead and wives follow. Only when you really take ownership of the word of God are you going to say, all right, God, I'm going to trust you in faith that I do this thing and you will handle it in the eternal spectrum, even though in the temporal reality I may not see what I want to see. See, all of these things are the reality that if God doesn't deposit this in your heart and your soul, you're just going to keep living life like you would live life apart from Christ. You're just going to claim Christ. You're going to make the same decisions apart from Christ as you do in Christ. There are vice versa because until you really own this revelation and knowledge until it's deposited, it's just, oh, those are good ideas. This is why Paul prays for this for Christians. 
That's why he wants Christians to know what they have. Because it's so easy as Christians to say, I've got it here, but, but, but I don't do it out there. I know, I know people are going to hell. The most important message the world could ever hear is the gospel. I know, but I don't believe it enough. I don't have the wisdom enough, the, the, the revelation enough in here to want to share that. I worry about how people will see me and how people will think. I know that God says, you know what? He's always going to take care of me, but boy, man, i, I got to make sure I step in and do this my way. See, these are the realities of a mind that is not bathed in, uh, has had deposited this, this knowledge and wisdom, right? Natural, earthly wisdom conforms to natural cause and effect. Earthly knowledge captures the requirements of a reproducible verification. You know, I mean, it's just like everything is very, we try to analyze and make it trustworthy in this world, but boy, this stuff that Paul's talking about is completely different completely different. It's this thing that only God can do, that we can't earn or achieve or master. Only God can deposit it. And the reason only God can deposit it, because at its core, it's all about him anyway. It's the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. It's not just any wisdom. It's not just any revelation, right? But it's this legitimate powerful, mysterious, deep, unexplainable knowledge of Him. Of Him. Right? Think about this idea, wisdom. Right? This wisdom is foolishness to the human mind. It's what I was saying earlier. It's foolishness to the human mind to say, you want to get ahead, be the least. You want to be first, be last. You want to really love, love your enemies. Let them slap you. Give them another cheek while you're at it. They say, go one mile, you go two miles. That's foolishness to the world. But that's the wisdom of God. It's the indwelling values of the kingdom. He says not just spirit of wisdom, but also revelation. Right? Something discerned only by the heart. It's this wordless creed by which you move from knowing of God to knowing about God to knowing and being known by God. It's like this progression. Some of us, we go, I know of God. And some of us say, I know about God. And some of us will say, I know God and I know that I'm known by God. I have that relationship. As they keep saying, only that is deposited. And when you get to that place where there's the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God, it changes everything in our motivations. It changes everything, right? Where we pray, not just to connect uh, the need or the gift to God, but rather we do it to connect with the giver. I mean, can you imagine that, that, that your prayer life would be mostly oriented around, I want to connect with the giver, not just request the gift. See, because that's where Paul wants us to get to. He wants us to grow to that place where we have that kind of knowledge of him. It's where we read the Bible to know the author, not just the content, right? I see the words, I see the, the black letters, I see the message, but I want to know the God who wrote the message. Paul says, that's what I would pray that you would know, right? You read to know the author. 
that you would serve so that you sense the Spirit's power coursing through you, not just to fulfill a need in the church or the community, but something deeper where you say, I want to connect with my God so often for us, including myself. Our Christian faith is like a system, and it's not a dance of us with the divine. It's not a relationship where we go, I want that relationship more and more every day. It's this thing that we manage or do or attend to or we're obedient with, not bad things, but not the best things. God wants us to want Him and experience Him. And that He would drive us and draw us more than all the other stuff, man. There's all kinds of things in this world we get excited about. Vacations and hobbies and fun events and all these things. Great things, but God wants us to want Him more than those. And that is not a place we will get to unless that passion is deposited God must bring it. Now, I believe we need to open ourselves up to it. As Paul is praying here, I believe this is how we pray. If we look at our prayer lives and say, you know what? In the last month, I have have prayed for a passionate knowledge of God. Once, we're not going to see it. Five times, probably not going to see it. Fifteen times, we're at 50%, probably not going to see it. Right? Not really. Right? This was a regular Paul prayer. Regular Paul prayer. This has to be our regular prayer. Like every day when we get up, God, I just want to know you more. And more importantly, not just me, but everybody around me. I pray that our church would know you more. I pray that my spouse would know you more. My kids would know you more. As parents, we raise our kids. We're pushing academics. We're pushing standard. We're pushing obedience. How often do we push? I want you to know God every day saying that more than once. Honey, I just want you to know him. And then praying that way. Man, God, may my kids know you. May my spouse know you. May the people I most care about know you in wisdom and revelation. Again, I, I, I think about my own life and how often that is not my prayer and it should be. And then I scratch my head and I go, man, I don't know why I feel spiritually dry at times. or I, 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 don't, I don't know why um, at times uh, within the family dynamic, uh, especially because uh, we work in it, literally work in it, um, why it can become like a job or a task. Here's the bottom line. Our Christianity will always be extracurricular until this is true. And it's only going to be true because we pray it. We pray it as Paul prayed it. He prays that God would give, right? Because when you have that revelation and knowledge of Him in all spiritual wisdom, you're going to obey him differently and you're going to trust him differently and you're going to have peace in him differently and you're going to share him differently. And if this isn't true, then all of those things become a little bit more awkward or increasing in, 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 in difficulty to achieve. Right? Because only he can energize it. And so Paul prays with great passion, man, may you know him. From there he prays that God would open them. Particularly having the eyes of their hearts enlightened satan blinds right paul says that satan blinds now satan blinds in a weird way satan comes as an angel of light to blind you and blind me i mean right that's what paul says he's an angel of light satan's going to come and give you a hundred good things 
hundred good things to blind you to the one great thing. He'll get you praying for all kinds of things as long as you don't pray for this thing because he wants to blind. But God wants to open our eyes to cause us to see, to be motivated by truths. I'd even say like the, the first 14 verses, right? Well, Paul is saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart would realize that you really have every spiritual blessing. I pray that the eyes of your heart would realize what it means to be adopted. I pray that the eyes of your heart would know what it really means to be redeemed and live different in light of that redemption. If we really knew who we were in Christ, boy, that would change everything. And so Paul prays, oh man, that God, that God would open that up in you, that you would see that. That you would see that so powerfully. It shapes your outlook no matter what the conditions are. This is always the problem again. We start to look at conditions. Instead of asking that the eyes of our heart would look at truth. That the eyes of our heart would look at faith. I find in my own life, I don't need more information, deeper information, newer information. I just simply need my heart to connect with the information I've got. Right? I mean, I, I, if my heart would simply connect with what's being taught in the kindergarten class back there, I would do well. If the eyes of my heart would absorb the simplest truths, the faith of a child, I would do well. Because if I see Jesus clearly, then I will be drawn to him compellingly. And if I don't see Jesus clearly, then you know what? Jesus is great, and I'll go do life also. And I know that's not what God's offered to us. And so Paul prays that our hearts would be opened, that our minds would see him clearly. See, all of this is about spiritual conviction. Not just moral conviction or ethical conviction, even creedal conviction. He's praying that God would give, that God would open. Again, go back to who has to do the giving and who has to do the opening. We don't open our eyes. We don't learn the stuff necessarily. He gives it. He opens. That's a conviction that comes from him. It's where Jesus is so real. It shapes everything. He shapes everything. We drive every decision through what would Jesus think? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus respond? That what would Jesus do thing? I thought it was so dumb at first until I realized it's genius. Because it's that simple. And Paul is praying that we would know that simplicity, that we would know, right here, that we would know. He says, I pray that you would know, verse 18. First of all, what is the hope to which he has called you. Did you know our calling is a calling of hope? We're called to hope. I mean, I love this right there, right? Because far too often we hope in lesser things, temporal things, and then we're discouraged, right? We hope in our investments and they don't play out. We hope in certain priorities, they don't pan out. We hope that certain hurts will go away and the hurts only magnify and increase. We take things in our own hands, we try to fix, we try to get vengeance, whatever else. We lose hope. We lose hope in kids or spouse or life or job, country. It's easy to lose hope. Part of it is because we're not maybe praying, God, remind me of what the real hope is, right? This should be our prayer. It should be our prayer that we would know the hope to which he has called us. I mean, really know it again. I'm not saying take the theological test and you pass the quiz. That's, that is easy to do. We can all pass that test. We can. 
But think about how often in life, how quick everything changes and we can lose hope. It just sucks out of the room like fire, just consuming oxygen, just gone. How quick can hope, how quickly hope can evaporate. Unless we know the hope of our calling, right? Unless we know our future and believe it. He says, man, I pray that you know the hope to which he has called you. Know it right here. He says, and I pray that you know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. All this means is he says, I, I, I pray that you know how much he values you. If you know just how much he values you, it shapes your thinking in life. You stop trying to get value from people. You stop striving to achieve in the eyes of men and women who frankly are not going to be the best judge anyway says boy you know who you are in christ you know that you are his inheritance it shapes how you live it can cause you to make the hard decision of holiness and did you know that holiness is a hard decision holiness is never easy never easy holiness is always inconvenient holiness always costs us something holiness is never going to be smooth it's never going to be smooth but if you understand how much he values you if you understand the hope to which you are called then the hardship of holiness is an opportunity. And so Paul prays that we would know that. That we would know that God is not indifferent to us, but he deeply values us. And so if we're going through certain things that are really hard and painful, don't think, well, does God care? That's not a fair question. I, what Paul wants us to know is that God does care. Paul knows this in prison. God cares. God's invested. God knows. He says, know that you are a glorious inheritance of God's. And he says, and I pray that you know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, right? Do you realize the power you have? I don't always realize it because I don't take it for a spin. Think about how much we spend our life looking down or looking around in discouragement. Watch a teenager that's depressed. They're always like this. They're always looking down. They're discouraged. They're depressed. You get older, you're looking down a lot of the time, except when you stop to turn to look around where you get more depressed, so you look back down. Right? Oh, that's where the money's going. Oh, that's where the life's going. Oh, that's where the spouse is going. Oh, that's where the kids are going. Oh, I'm down. When, when Scripture says look up, look up. Look up to where your hope is. Look up to where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. I think about the psalmist when he says, I look to the mountains. Where does my hope come from? He looks to the mountains and he sees idols. And he says, it doesn't come from the, the mountaintops of where the idols reside. He has to look higher. He says, I have to look to the heavens where God resides, where power comes from. We spend way too much time looking down, looking around, not looking up. So Paul prays that we would look up and realize the power that we have, right? It's going to be a power that strengthens you. It is not always going to be a power that rescues you or eases you or serves you, but it will grow you and strengthen you and completely complete you. That it will do. Paul knows that it will do that. And so he prays for all of that, and then he encourages them by saying, you know what? All of this should be inspired through powerful things, just reflecting on what God has already done, knowing what he's given to you. Right? In fact, he has this weird little transition. 
He's saying, I pray that you know the hope, the riches, the greatness of power. He says, all of this is according to the working of his great might. He says, I want you to know that the same power that did certain things that forever shaped our faith is the same power granted to you. So he says, I pray that you know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, verse 20. So it's realizing that the same power that rose Christ from the dead is the power bestowed to you as the church. Next Sunday we're going to come together and I'm going to say he is risen and you're going to say he's risen indeed and we're all going to celebrate. We're going to have great just worship of remembering what God has done but we almost act as that was the only time he's shown that power. And the reality is God says, I want to show that power in your life every single day. Paul in Philippians 3 says, I just want to know the power that rose Christ from the dead. He means right now in my life. Man, if we're praying that way, God, show us the power that rose Christ from the dead. It changes things. And so Paul roots this right in that, man, the same power that I'm praying for in your life is the same power that rose Christ from the dead. It's also that same power that seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, Right? It was that rewarding power, exalting power, hope-motivated power that is now power given to you. The same power in him is given to you. Do you believe it? You might go, yeah, yeah, that's nice, sure, right, uh-huh. It is. It's also the same power that authorized Jesus. For he is now far above all ruler and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, Right? This isn't for the ease of life, but it certainly is for the abundance of life that Jesus promised. And it's going to come in the same way that it came to Jesus. Think about how all of this power given to Jesus came. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and he endured its shame. Right? So it was suffering that brought him to this place of authority and exaltation. And so the attitude we need to have in life is for the joy set before us, we endure life and we face the pain. And we will, in turn, be exalted with him as he is exalted. So you have to realize that same power that authorized Jesus is to you, and you need to realize that God's power toward you is the same power that exalted Jesus. And he put all things, it says in verse 22, under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. What this means right here is that Jesus, he's a conqueror. And because Jesus is a conqueror, you are more than a conqueror. Because all authority, all exaltation is his now, and you're in him, so it is yours. It's the promise. And because Jesus has conquered, he uses all of that power for his church, so Jesus has got your back. He's got your back when you're trying to decide, do I do the right thing or the convenient thing? Do I do the godly thing or the self-seeking thing? God says, you know what, because you're in my son, I've got your back. You do the right thing, it's going to go right with you. You do the wrong thing, you're going to be picking up your own pieces. So do the right thing because he's got your back. And understand this power is not merely an external force. We are his body and he fills us with his fullness right that's what it says here jesus dwells in us that's our power we are in him that's our position he fills us to advance him for others all for his glory and our good that is what paul's saying so he's praying that we get all of this and we would ground it in these truths that we hold dear 
And so because of all of this, because of this prayer, because you and I are in Jesus, all this power is yours. It's yours. Now on the screen it says, if you seek it. I almost didn't put if you. Because technically, all this power is yours, so seek it. It's yours. It's already there. Right? If you're wondering, Matt, I need more blessing. No, you don't. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Matt, I need more power. No, you don't. It's all there. Matt, I need more strength. No, you don't. It's all there. The question is, do we access it? Do we seek it? Do we want it? Do we ask God for it? It's there. It's yours to have. But it's something that must be desperately, prayerfully pursued. And so let's pursue it now in prayer. Jesus. We spend so much of life thinking that we are missing out on something. That we are lacking something. And yet your word clearly says we have everything for life and godliness through you. Your word says we have all power, all blessing, all authority. We have been seated with you in the heavenly places, it says in chapter 2 of Ephesians. We have it all. My prayer is that we would believe it and that we would seek it, that we would not be satisfied until we've tasted and seen the Lord is good, that we would not be satisfied with just getting by, we would not be satisfied with just sort of a ho-hum status quo Christian faith. We wouldn't be satisfied with, with, with just um, you know, doing the church thing on Sunday and kind of then doing life as we see fit but we would realize that you want to be known by us in powerful ways. I pray that we as your church would know you. I pray that we as your church would be filled with this wisdom and with this knowledge and our, the eyes of our heart would be opened and we would know the power that is given to us and how you fill us completely. So may we seek it. Bring yourself upon your church in powerful ways motivating us out of pure joy, not burden, not guilt, pure joy and anticipation. We seek you and need you in your name. Amen.